Welcome back to the Resilient Responder, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of our first responder and military communities. Here we talk about the job, mental wellness and resiliency, coaching, family, and living our best lives. Now, once again, here is your host, Keith Hanks. All right, folks, welcome back to the Resilient Responder podcast. Again, I am your host, Keith Hanks, and this uh, this podcast is always dedicated to the mental wellness and resiliency of the men and women in the first responder and military world. Uh, it's always interesting when I uh, when I when I get the ability to bring guests onto the show, uh, who we end up getting on. And like I said in the beginning, when we put this whole thing together, was it wasn't always going to be just the first responders, right? We wanted to open this up and open people's minds to the other end of this when it comes to the mental wellness, and that would be the clinicians and the other resources that are out there. And today's guest is, is just that. My guest today is Katie Llewellyn. Uh, she's from California. She is a practicing therapist, trainer, and an advocate, has been for a long time. And she began working with first responders and veterans very early on in her career. Uh, she's been a clinician uh, with the Critical Incident Stress Management Team out of Butte County for over 20 years, uh, where she's the clinical co-director uh, she trains both fire and law enforcement agencies and peer support teams as well. In her private therapy practice, she's uh, facilitated a first responder-based support group as well. Uh, so with that, I'll let Katie kind of take over and give me a little bit more, give me and our guests a little bit more of her background and, and what she does. Katie, thanks for coming on today. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to to be chatting with you about this. Um, let's see. So more about me. I um, I kind of fell into working with first responders. I hung out with a bunch of firefighters when I was in graduate school. <laughs> so that was my sort of first introduction to the culture. And then was asked to be on the CISM team um, in 2000, 2001, maybe. Um, and then really had a, an amazing experience after 9-11 when... Mm. Uh, our team was asked to come and debrief. NYPD was debriefing their entire department. Mm. And we were asked to, well, um, CSF asked all different CISM teams across the United States, and I think actually outside of the United States as well, to send teams if they wanted to. And um, I just happened to be able to go, which was amazing. I went with three police officers from Butte County. Um, and we spent eight days debriefing NYPD officers and wow. going around. It was April. Um, while I was there, they found a body, which was amazing, an amazing experience. Um, wow. We watched from kind of a view viewing platform as they like lined the runway with all the EMS and then brought the body out. Um, it was just, it was an incredible experience. So uh, that, that was kind of like, oh, these are my people. And I, hmm. this is kind of really where I want to focus. Um, and then since then, I've kind of off and on had lots of nurses, doctors, paramedics, EMTs, fire and law enforcement, um, and dispatchers also. So, yeah, I I see a lot of people <laughs> every <laughs> week. And I also have another therapist that works for me who sees 38 people a week also. So Nice. It's a uh, it's a pretty interesting crowd of people that you've uh, chosen to hang around and provide uh, counseling and yeah. therapy to. That's for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so one of the things I always like to do is is break down uh, the misnomers a lot with a lot of these resources. And I think I like to tell people I've been around for a while. Uh, my family was in this in this field since the late 1800s, so I kind of 
grew up around it. And the mindset has always been that, you know, if you get therapy, if you, if you go see a quote unquote shrink, um, you're weak and, right. um, we're just starting. And, and I know you'll, you'll understand this in the last three to five years, uh, the break that down and it's all part of the mm-hmm. stigma. Um, in your, in your time doing this, uh, what has sort of been, what have you seen from your perspective when it comes to the transition of more and more, uh, specifically, I guess, men, um, but even women, uh, first responders come in and, and talking to you? Yeah, it's interesting. I see such a change when we do debriefings, and that is kind of a good measure because it's a large group of people, um, sometimes men and women, and also different agencies, right? So you'll in a debriefing, you'll have law enforcement, fire, dispatch, um, EMS. And I remember the first debriefing I did was a huge um, double homicide officer-involved shooting. Two officers were killed. And I remember I was I was sitting in the middle of the SWAT team and they were not happy to be there. And, you know, arms crossed, sitting back in their chairs, you know, mumbling under their breath. Um, And understandable, right? They Mm -hmm. didn't I think maybe someone told them there had to be there, which isn't how we like to do CISM, but sometimes that happens. Um, And fast forward to starting probably five or six years ago where there's none of that. Mm. There is none of that at debriefings, especially. Um, Part of it is that we're pretty familiar. You know, I'm pretty familiar in the EMS scene (laughs) these days. And Mm. so they know who I am. I used to be like the only one, you know, that was not in EMS. So um, that's part of it. But I think the other part is that, especially in our county, um, there have been a lot of people my age, I'm 48 and and lower, who are pretty educated about it. Mm-hmm. And now they're the captains and they're becoming the battalion chiefs and they're becoming the lieutenants and they're becoming the sergeants. And they are really, some of them are really encouraging it. And so you know, we have captains that will come into a debriefing in the beginning and say to their teams, hey, we're so glad you guys are here. This is super mm-hmm. helpful. I'm in therapy myself, you know, and then they'll leave because they weren't part of the incident. But that holds huge weight um, right. in in breaking down that stigma. Um, we had a huge fire, the campfire, which burned down an entire town seven miles from here right. and other towns way and I did a lot of station visits about four days later and I traveled around with a battalion chief who actually was my client Um, it just happened that way because we were both working at the incident command base Um, and we walked into the first station and he said you know he introduced himself and then he said this is Katie she's a therapist she's actually my therapist Hmm. and you could just see everyone at the station was like Wow. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was so powerful. So I have seen a huge change and I like to remind people of that. Um, you know, there are still some of the old school suck it up. Um, wow. but I just kind of like to pretend they're not there. <laughs> That's it's it's weird and it's it's funny that you bring up the age thing. So I, I talk about this all the time with, with people, and yeah. I just had this conversation with, with one of our last guests. The the age thing is clutch here. So I find now I'm I'm 44, and mm-hmm. you know obviously like I said I got on the job back in the mid 90s. The I have found with like the national speaking the advocate sort of scene that there's like this yeah. bracket and that bracket is from around 36 to 52. 
with with at least mm-hmm. men. And that's huge because those are your senior members. Those are your veterans. Those are the people who are being looked up to. And if those people in that age group are willing to to be vulnerable and transparent when it comes to mental health and, and their therapy or the, the resources they use, that's going to trickle down uh, to the folks coming in the door or going through the academy. Absolutely. And um, it's funny that you say that because it is, it's that bracket and it's, it's great. It's, it's great to hear that because um, those are mm-hmm. the people that I know when I got on, those are the people yeah. I was looking up to. Right. And it was very different, I'm assuming. Uh, it, it was a little bit. And, uh, you know, going back to your, what you said about the, the schism with the arms crossed, I remember my, my first one uh, in 97 after a fatal fire. And, you know, the details of the fire are, you know, not really relevant besides the fact that it was a murder-suicide. And um, the the schism was literally walked in and it was like 15 of us all men and then the guy looked at the crowd and was like, hey, you guys want to share your feelings? And no one did. And literally looked mm-hmm. at all of us and was like coffee and donuts in the back. And that was it. That was that was my first SISM interaction at 18 years old. And um, things have changed, as, as you know. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Another place that I think I see a, a huge difference is when I've talked to other therapists or read things about working with first responders, sometimes there's this message of, Oh, you have to be so careful. Like you need to have an entrance door and a door that people can go out of because mm. of all this stuff. And I find that the opposite is true, that I sometimes say more therapy happens in my waiting room than it does in my room. Mm. Um, because people will be waiting to come in and going out, and you can see it. They're yeah. like, Oh, you're here too. You know, and there's this, right. there's this um comfort in like, okay. We're, we're in the same boat. They're all in the same boat. They all know it, yeah. right? It's just whether or not they're willing to to deal with it. So that's the other part I like to talk to people about that when there are supervisors that are negative mm-hmm. um, or, you know, our, our huge fire, which was in a string of fires that people responded to, but the one that was close by was in 2018. And sometimes, you know, you'll hear the the older people saying, oh, when are you going to get over it? You know, that was four years ago. And, Hmm. um, you know, I like to say, well, you don't ever get over it. You move through it. Heal. Yeah. I think that that's just, it's important to see that the people that don't want to deal with it or who say, when are you going to get over it are, are fearful of dealing with their own shit. Um, yeah. Because once once they say, oh, Keith, I see that you're hurting. Now they're opening this gate for now I have to look at my own hurt. And that's pretty scary for people. Self-reflection, it, it can be a terrifying thing when you're not ready for it. And I know I was. Um, it was very terrifying for me until I owned it and started, you know, taking yeah. care of my own shit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard. Um, and I, I just like to have grace with those people and say, well, when they're ready or when they, you know, when the shit hits the fan and they can't get out of bed or they can't get on the engine or they can't put their pants on, they'll end up dealing with it also, you know. It's very true. And, you know, this is this is a great segue to, the, to a part I, I like to talk about a lot with people, uh, especially first responders. And that is how much that the job itself actually triggers personal stuff with, with first responders, Mm -hmm. you know, and as a man, I know that I always just was like, Oh no, no, the job is really hard. It's it's all these dead people I'm seeing. It's all these bad calls when in actuality, 
that was just triggering stuff from my from my personal life. Have you? Um, I'm sure you have. I'm not even going to ask if you have. Uh, from your perspective, what has that been like uh, when you've worked through with different uh, with different clients to to hear them sort of make that transition? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the thing that I I think of and I say, especially with men, is you have two strikes. One is you're a man in America. Mm. So from the time you were out of the womb, you've been taught not to recognize, deal with, name um, your feelings. And then you've gone into a job where you learned that you can't get through this if you feel anything. So you better shut it down and do your job. And so that yeah so then then here you are and that works for a while right it works in the beginning it's exciting there's a lot of adrenaline you often people are single they get off their four days and they're or three days in their home and they go skiing and drink and whatever right and they come back to work well i find it kind of stops working once there's a significant other or children mm. right where you can't just come home and totally check out however healthy and unhealthy ways right now now there are demands at home also and you've also been taught to compartmentalize so you're coming home and only sharing half of yourself if that because you've been told leave work at work which is impossible by the yeah, way right um right so so it's super fucked up and people are like i don't know what's wrong with me i'm like well i know what's wrong with you you're not you're not being allowed to be who you are, you know? Um, I've had clients come in and just sit and cry for the first five, six sessions. And they'll say, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what, what's, and I'm like, I do. You have seen a lot of sad, scary, upsetting shit. And you've not allowed your body to let go of it in any way. And here you are, this is healthy. So often I see that what I'm helping people work on is what's going on in your body and what are those, how do you name that, right? Mm. And then also how long have you, you know, helping them recognize what you're saying, how long has it been that you've not been able to recognize your feelings? Right. Um, most of us that work in these helping fields have childhood trauma of our own. Mm -hmm which is why we feel comfortable doing it. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, who's amazing, who wrote Body Keeps the Score. Um, I was at a conference and he showed a picture of the Twin Towers um, burning. And it was from Brooklyn on the Brooklyn Bridge. And all the people were coming out towards Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is what normal people do. Normal people leave when something like this happens. Right. <laughs> but fucked up people go to yep. that happening. Right. And so recognizing what is it about our history that um, helped us become, you know, feel safer or comfortable at least in chaos. Mm. And, um, and that's, that can be hard to face. You know, it can be hard to to see that, especially if you've learned your entire life to not look at that and to not express it and to not name it and to not share it for sure. Yeah. So it's um so the one of the things I always say to people when it when it comes to that is that, you know, 
the the, the running towards danger thing where, where normal people you know smart people if you will mm-hmm. uh go the other way um yeah. i always tell people in regards to what what i went through with my own childhood trauma that at that point when i was on the job there was nothing more scarier more terrifying than what i had already been through so therefore maybe in a way there's almost like a death wish part there where you're not mm-hmm. afraid of it and what's it going right. to do it's going to kill you everything's going to be over so you know it's always funny when someone well not funny it's actually terribly sad but it's always interesting when someone especially mm-hmm. from a clinical point brings up that um that point of view that you know a lot of these first responders especially the men have had childhood trauma and the numbers and i'm sure you're aware of this the numbers are very high i was part of a uh, yeah. research project where they did a, a surveyed 100 men male firefighters and 75 percent of them who these were all men who either were diagnosed with ptsd or had symptoms of 75 percent mm-hmm. of them had childhood trauma oh yeah i, I yeah I, I, undoubtedly and probably 85 percent 75 percent know about it or were able to express it yeah it's huge and on the flip side it's also an amazing gift mm-hmm. to be able to have the resiliency to go through what people have gone through as children, young adults, adults, and still be able to to function, you know, in this capacity. And people often say, I'm so afraid of learning about my feelings. What if I'm on a on a incident and I'm overwhelmed with feelings because now I know how to feel my feelings? Am I going to be able to do my job? And I always say, yes, absolutely. Because you, because of all your training and also your fight or flight, you're going to do the right thing. And the real danger is if you haven't dealt with your shit Mm. and, and it comes up for the first time on an incident and you freeze, that's the danger right Right now. You know, we're working on letting it out, recognizing it, knowing what to do with it when it comes and there's less danger now of it getting in the way of you performing your job. Um, but I get it. And people will say to me like, "Ugh, I wish I had never started this process because it's so painful. Yeah. And I'll remind them when they came in, I'll remind them when you came in, you were drinking from the moment you got off of work until the moment you went back. You were getting high the entire time as well. You mm-hmm. had zero relationship with your wife. You didn't know your kids you didn't have friends so it wasn't great which is why you probably decided to come in but yes there are parts of it that are easier when you're not aware of your feelings for sure and i think that's 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 part of what leads to the biggest part of the stigma is that people think that if you start dealing with your feelings uh all of a sudden you're not going to be a tough guy or tough tough girl anymore and you know you're not gonna be able to do the job anymore and it's like honestly at this juncture at least in my life and other people i know who have dealt with their feelings I'm a stronger person. Oh, I'm, absolutely. I'm more reliable. I'm stronger. Yeah. I, I love myself more, which means I'm able to do mm-hmm. things better and more wholeheartedly. It actually makes you stronger. And I think that's a lot of like what we do here, what you're doing out in out in California, what other people are doing when it comes to advocating is is letting people know that this isn't about taking the toughness out of the job. This isn't about not being part of that one, one and a half percent that can do the job. This is about being able to do it better and heal from it and be resilient. Yes. Yeah. I love that you said wholeheartedly because the definition of courage is to show up with your whole heart. Right. All of it. Right. The, The fear, the humiliation, the sadness, the excitement, the joy, the glory, all of it. 
And um, I've had like a, a police officer that I can think of who um, was at a scene. He was there by himself. It was taking a long time for people to come. And, you know, he was really upset because he said all I could do was hold this, the victim's head and just be there with them. And, and he said, and it was so upsetting. And I was, I had tears in my eyes and I said, that is so beautiful, right? I mean, this guy's dying and you're sad, which is so appropriate. Yep. So yep. much more appropriate than sitting there like, fuck this, you know, <laughs> like, yes, it's sad. You're, you're holding someone's head while they die. And what a, what a beautiful gift to them that they weren't alone and that the person that was holding their head was caring and loving and vulnerable in in this in their last moments you know they were but human. it does take a lot of yes yes it takes a lot of normalizing that to um to help people you know i i'll say you've been learning for 44 years not to show your feelings and that feelings are bad and they, they're a weakness. So it's going to take a while to unlearn it, but, but it, it happens rather quickly. I find once people, once people are in the situation where they can be open and vulnerable. Yeah. Once those do dominoes start falling in a, in a positive way, uh, it does happen quickly and you quickly learn um, kind of, it doesn't, you don't necessarily change, but you, you quickly learn what you need to do to continue to change. And, and especially when it comes to, like you said, uh, feeling again and feeling maybe for the first time and, and having that full spectrum uh, of emotions instead of just anger and, and confusion and anxiety um, you, you actually have a full spectrum you're able to be happy you're able to be sad you're able to be scared because it's okay to be scared even as a man I get scared mm -hmm. you know what I mean and yeah. um, you have to own that yeah 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 and I think that that people do once they're more comfortable with it once they've been doing it for a while they are, they, they know that, you know, I think it's just right in the beginning where it's like, oh shit. And I will always people ask people, how does your body feel? Mm. Um, like lower than your throat, right? Because yeah. so many men, they'll, they can tell me they think what they're thinking, but I'll say, no, like, what do you feel in your throat? What do you feel in your chest? What do you mm. feel in your heart? What do you feel in your belly? What do you feel in your knees? And it takes a long time for people to kind of have that loop opened um but they get so much more information about what's going on once they do you know so it's super important it's huge it's huge and um you know this is this is a um for men you know uh and we're gonna in, in two seconds we're actually going to talk about the the my view on 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 how females have to deal with this um Ugh. especially in the in the first spinal world but I, I just want to say that, you know, it, as men, we have for generations been taught to just bury it. And mm -hmm. it's, it, it has what, in my mind, has led to so many problems, uh, especially yeah. on a domestic level uh, with the relationships oh, yeah. that we just, we're not facing who our emotions that everyone else is allowed to face. And then you take and you mix in there a tough culture like the military and the first responder world, where it's like, no, you have to be tough all the time. You have to be a cyborg. And they teach you to keep those dials up, but they don't teach you how to bring them back down to normal limits uh, when you're not operating on a high stress incident. And that's where the problem really is, is that you just, you don't go back to being human. Right. 
Yeah, I, you know, Brene Brown, who's so great, her research about feelings is so amazing. And she says, you can't selectively shut down feelings. So when you, when you shut down fear and sadness and humiliation and vulnerability, you also shut down joy and happiness and care and all those other emotions. And I agree with you. I think it's why we have such a huge drug and alcohol problem also with first responders and veterans, because that is a reliable way to shut down feelings, Mm -hmm. right? It becomes a very um, necessary, necessary feeling way of being okay when all that stuff starts to come up and and someone doesn't know what to do with it yeah no it's a it's a big thing bad bad coping skills are uh have been for at least a while way of life in the first responder world you know and um uh, you know this is uh this is a good spot we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break folks we're gonna hear from our sponsor first responder coaching real quick and we're gonna come back and get right back into this conversation Coaching is here now for all first responders and their families. When it comes to the job and the stresses that come with it, we at First Responder Coaching know exactly how it can affect every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. That's because we are first responders and their families. First responders are well-versed in reacting to a situation. It is literally what we do as firefighters, law enforcement, dispatch, and EMS personnel. When trauma enters our lives, we react to it by tucking it down away somewhere in our minds but we carry it with us and never really goes away. We need to stop carrying trauma into every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's time to start having proactive, powerful conversations right now to gain a better balance in the responder's whole life. This is true for their families, especially the spouses. Take that first step in making some of the most important improvements in your life. Visit www.1strespondercoaching.org now to make an appointment to chat with FRC. A coach will reach out, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to living a proactively fit lifestyle. All right, so here with Katie Llewellyn, we are having an amazing conversation from a clinician's point of view. She works with first responders out in the West Coast and across the country, uh, and we're really getting into this conversation to give you guys uh, some perspective from uh, you know a therapist's point of view on this. And, um, you know, where we left off, it kind of transitions into a, a part that I hold very near and dear to me, and that's identity and purpose. And um, I've discovered, and I didn't realize this for years, right? Um, it was always there, but I didn't realize that the job was my identity up until not many years ago. And a lot of that, like we've been talking about, comes back to childhood trauma. My, my trauma took my identity from me. And so when I got on the job at a very young age, which for me was 18, I was handed a badge and an identity. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, and this is, um, I'm going to be interested to hear your perspective on this. Um, when people come in, uh, men or women, come into your into your practice or you you know deal with the systems, what is what has been your 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 perspective on on hearing it? Whether they said I, I I don't know who I am, but just seeing that you can tell that this person has no identity outside the firehouse or outside of the yeah. law enforcement or whatever. What, what's been your experience with that? Yeah. I mean, I do see that for sure. Um, and I, I do want to get to talking about females because I think that's an interesting yeah. conversation also. Um, I, I understand it. You know, I understand that need to belong. We all have a need to belong and being a part of something is actually and being close, both emotionally close, but also physically close is the only way we will survive as humans, right? So it's a, such a strong desire. 
Um, and I, what I see is that conflict between this identity that I'm supposed to be, right? This tough firefighter, this tough police officer, and this inside that is, you know, I always, I sometimes say like this little teeny tiny boy, I say that to myself, I don't say it to my clients, <laughs> but this, this teeny tiny boy who's just hurt and scared and confused. Right. And how do you, how do you meld those two together? How can you be both? Right. And right. there's conflict there. Um, and I also see it when people retire. Yes. Um, I've had a few pretty young guys retire, um, on medical retirement. And it's interesting to watch their process of letting go of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you, they've been firefighters since they were 18, 19, 20. And now people say, Oh, what do you do? And they're like, uh, I'm retired firefighter. Oh, I have no so, idea. So young. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're so young. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, some of them are very open about sharing why and how, and I think that that's super healthy. Um, and they are searching for their, like, okay, what do I want to do? And, and the hard thing I think in that is that being in the military or being a first responder, I don't need to tell you this, but there's such a rush associated with, with the job mm -hmm. and people are, they, they know that they don't want to do that anymore or they can't do that anymore but there's this search for like, what else am I going to do? Like, yep. you know, like that's going to like, are they, am I going to work at Lowe's? Like, no, nothing else. No, nothing else measures up at that point when you, when yes. you leave the job. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and with, and, and purpose also, because when your purpose is saving lives, like really truly saving lives, um, finding something else that gives you a sense of purpose can be really hard. Mm. Um, and we talk a lot about like, especially those younger guys that have retired, you know, who are home now with kids. And <laughs> I'll remind them when you were gone for 40 days during the summer, and I was zooming with you from a hotel in the middle of a inferno, mm. all you wanted was to be home with the kids. And what an amazing gift that, that you are such a huge part of their lives, you know, and, and it's, that's a different, a different sense of purpose. But I think that um, or whomever, right? Your significant other or your parents. It doesn't have to be kids. Um, but reminding people of that purpose. But I think it is hard and in, in losing that adrenaline rush. And I, you know, people retire and they're like, oh my God, I just like all I'm doing is sleeping. And I'm like, yeah, you've been not sleeping for 30 years. Of course, all you're doing is sleeping. And there's this kind of, you know, you've been climbing up and up and up and up in this fight mode for so long. And there is a drop. And it's scary for people. It's terrifying. So, yeah. It's terrifying. And honestly, I, I like to tell people that I used to create my own chaos when I left the job because I needed some sort of chaos in my life. And it usually came in the form of some sort of altercation with uh, with like my wife or, or something like that, someone close to me, where I needed something to fill yeah. in that void of no adrenaline, no no controversy, no not, no chaos. And it's, uh, it's tough because you do, you lose that identity and purpose uh, when you transition out of the job whether it's retirement medical uh injury whatever it may be um yeah it's tough and i would say also that the um 
like the fighting when you come home, I I often remind people that sometimes that's our only way of knowing how to connect mm. in a really intense emotional way. So when you come home and you feel disconnected and, you know, often people describe it like, I, I feel like I'm like coming into this stranger's household. I don't know where I fit in. I'm not part of the system. Hmm. I, I just mess it up if I try to do something, right? Hmm. Um, and so how do you connect? Well, when you're fighting, you're connected, you know? It's true. It's yeah. true. When I first got off the job, we had me and my wife had a hard time sort of communicating at first. And she joked with me one day, she goes, I'm going to, I'm going to get a couple of walkie talkies and that's how we're going to talk. Cause you don't talk like this to your, to other people over the radio. So I'm going to give you, yes. I'm going to give you a couple of walkie talkies. That's how we're going to communicate for a while. We didn't do yeah. it. But it was sort of, yeah. it's true. Right. Yeah. Frequently I'll work with a first responder or a veteran and we'll work for a long time and I'll, you know, I'll start saying, how about having your significant other come in? And they look at me like, no. <laughs> and then it's so interesting because they've come so far in my, in their relationship with me, as far as being able to express themselves and, um, and share, it's always astounding that they have to almost start at the beginning with their significant other once they're here, you know, I have right. to like walk them through, okay, can you share what's going on in your body? You know, can you share just how it is to be in the room with this person right now? There is, there is hope. And, um, you oh. know, this, this, this is one of the things I always try to express is that, that there, there is hope. And it kind of brings us to another, another part that I want to talk about. And this is the female first responders and yes. what they, they have to deal with. Now I grew up in a very, we'll call it chauvinistic, I guess, but very male dominated era, uh, with my family mm -hmm. and, and the job. And there weren't a lot of females in, in the field when I got on. And nowadays, uh, I see it sort of like this. So we have this stigma with mental health uh, that mm -hmm. the men themselves are having a hard time being able to admit they have a problem with because they have their own you know, level they got to live up to. But then you have yeah. the double-edged sword with females, right? So yeah. they're supposed to be more emotional. They're supposed to be whatever, whatever society dictates they're supposed to be. But they have this higher than... than normal expectation on the job so now if they admit that they're being affected or they have right whatever issues going on well then obviously they can't do the job right right and it's because they're female and it's because they're female they don't usually talk about that mm. but i can see it right? right i can see it in the way that um well one thing that's so interesting working in such a small county <laughs> Um, or town, I should say, is I hear everybody talking about everybody else, mm -hmm. you know, so they're constantly, my clients are talking about someone that I see in my practice. No. <laughs> they don't know that. Right. So it's, it's so interesting. My relationship with a, say, you know, like a female firefighter and then to hear other men talk about that female firefighter and just the, how their perspective sometimes is very similar than my, to mine. Of course, I don't work with them, you know, um, but sometimes it's so different. And I, I, I see that a lot. I, I see that, that women um, feel disregarded, especially um, communications operators and dispatch. Mm. Um, it's less so now, I will say. 
Um, when I do debriefings and often the dispatchers are females, not always, um, there's always a tremendous amount of respect and appreciation shown yeah. from the field. And they will say like, you guys, we could never do our jobs without you. 100%. 100%. And yeah. And it's not prompted by me. And it is so important, you know, for dispatchers to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I think for females, it's hard. It's really hard. And I think we need to be sending the same mes message to them, which is your feelings will help you. You know, it's not, there's no weakness in sharing how you are feeling and what's going on. Um, it's, it actually takes more strength to do that than to shut down and drink your life away. But it, I, I, I hope it's changing. I hear it in the voices of male um, first responders as they talk about females in a very um, respectful and equal way, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and they, you know, supervisors do struggle with that. I think they struggle with that feeling of, I want to be super supportive of this female on my team. And at the same time, I don't want to treat them any differently because I don't really see them differently, but they are the only female in the house. You know, it's just this, it's mm. very tricky. Um, and, and often they'll tell me, and they're, they're great firefighters. They see things and do things and um, understand what's going on in a way that men don't just because of our gender differences or, you know, whatever. It's true. Yeah. And, and, I, and I agree. I think things are changing. And I think a lot of that's uh, thanks to some of the, the females that are out there uh, on the tip of the spear, so to speak, with with yeah. this topic. And uh, a shout out to Tracy Eldridge, who is a, a friend of mine who also runs her own podcast and runs her own business uh, on scene first. And she actually, her background is being in dispatch. And uh, uh -huh. she, she was a supervisor uh, out here in my neck of the woods. And um, she now goes around the country and talks about, you know, dispatcher wellness and focusing on how, you know, dispatchers and telecommunicators are always, you know, the forgotten ones. And her being a female and, and getting up in front of people and, and sharing her story is helping to, you know, bridge that gap and, and break down some of that yeah. stigma. And it's huge. It's huge. And I really it think huge. it is changing um, where females, where they were sort of forced to kind of keep to themselves when it came to, you know, how the job was affecting them when they were, you know, first coming into it to now where they're, where they are in, in, in a lot of places, not everywhere. Um, but in mm -hmm. a lot of places, you know, regarded at the same level as, as the men. Yeah. I mean, I always, people, my clients say to me, I don't know how you do this. And I'm like, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not for me, you know, but I, I admire women who can stay true to themselves and still really, you know, physically and emotionally and, and, um, professionally kick ass when they're out there. Right. You know, and I, and I think, I think it's, people tend to think that it's uh, women just in inherently have an easier time crying, if you will. And I think it's just a social thing. Oh. Honestly, men, men have just been for generations have just been, you know, predisposed to not be allowed to. Yes. That's really yes. the only reason I can break down and cry anytime I want. And I do. Um, yeah. But because of society in, in this culture specifically, uh, I had just been so trained and, and mind warped not to that I had to start unmind warping myself and a lot of other men have had right. to do the same, you know, and it's not, right. it's not that necessarily, you know, I mean, yes, in some genetic level, 
maybe women are more connected with their emotions, but we're not necessarily more emotional, more than the other sex. It's not, no. it really isn't. No. I mean, I have um, two boys and two girls of my own, my children, mm. and my boys are very emotional. And um, I used to teach child development and I would teach a lot about this, about attachment theory and letting boys have feelings. And I remember male students would say, but your boys are going to be teased and they're going to be blah, 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 blah. And, you mm. know, you're doing them a disservice. And I, I appreciate those comments. I did. And I said, you know, that might be true, but this isn't going to change any other way. And it just turns out that my oldest, who's 19, is a black belt in mm. Do, which is in martial art. He's kind of a skinny, skinny thin, nerdy artist, mm. and he could kill someone. So, um, and very emotional and open, which is lovely. And then my youngest, who's 13, also super emotional. And he's 13, he's six feet tall. He'll probably mm. be about six four, six five. Wow. And so I love it. I love that I have these strong very sensitive emotional boys that's the key um, word I, strong yeah and i think that's so, a misnomer and i think that's great that, that I'm, i appreciate you saying that because being as a man being in touch with your emotions even a female being in touch with your emotions doesn't make you less strong it makes you stronger because you have more control over oh, that spectrum i think it is changing and sometimes i believe that and then i you know kind of look out into this greater sphere of the <laughs> world and think like, oh God, maybe it's not, but, <laughs> but yeah. it is. I mean, I think it, it is changing. Um, my son and I were hooked on the show 911. I don't know if you've watched it. Yeah, my wife watches my it. Husband, my husband rolls his eyes. But what <laughs> I do love about it is that they are showing, the men in that show are very emotional. Yes. And it's so important. And it is corny and blah, blah, blah. But- it is a great message. It's a great message. When they talk about drugs and alcohol, they talk about PTSD. Yep. Um, and I think it is really important. And, and that tells me that the greater society is more accepting. And at least that information is getting out there, you know, that- Which, which is huge. So huge. Yeah. It really is. And, and Hollywood has the uh, ability because people are always binge watching whatever and waiting for the next right. series. They they stand in the ability, you know, in a, in a spot to get that information out there and show that as a society, it is okay to do this. Mm -hmm. And to have these shows that are, you know, first responder based, uh, showing that is, is a big thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And ultimately I think it is um, as people change, you know, as first responders change, as veterans change and they, talk to their friends about their change and they're accepting of their coworkers who are struggling and they see it, you know, and they, they can say, Hey, I can see you're struggling. That is where the huge change happens. You know, most people that come in, I always say like, what brought you in? Mm. And almost always they'll say a few people at work, you know, usually more than two people at work said, Hey, something doesn't seem right with you. Are you okay? And when I'm working with people and sometimes they're off work for a short bit or um, whatever, but they'll go back to work and they'll say, oh my God, Katie, I can now see everyone around me <laughs> is struggling, you know? And I will really encourage people to reach out and they always, not always, but often they'll say, well, I don't really know what to say. And I'm like, pick up your phone right now. Here's the text. Hey, I'm thinking about you. Yep. That's it. 
That's all it has to be. It doesn't have to be, here's a therapist. It doesn't have to be, you seem like things aren't okay. Just that little tiny connection, reaching out and saying, hey, I'm worried about you or I'm thinking about you. That is where it all starts, I think. It, it really is. Conveying that that empathy and that sympathy uh, more, more frequently, I, I think, you know, beyond just, you know, what we do for a job and being like, oh, we care for people when we have to go care for people. Let's care for people even when it's not, you know, when we're not on the time clock, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. Being seen is pretty important. Yeah, and, and honestly, it starts with yourself. And I think we lose because we're we're always in that helper mentality. We lose focus on what it really needs to be, and we really need to start with self love. We really need to care about ourselves, and that's not necessarily a narcissistic in a narcissistic way. But we really oh. need to care for ourselves and love ourselves if we're going to be able to transfer that to the job and ultimately our personal life, especially our our, our spouses and our children. I think people have a very um, skewed vision of what therapy is. Mm. And I want people to know that like, this is kind of what therapy is, right? It's just talking about this stuff. It's not, yep. you know, I don't do any, like, I don't do any written assessments. I don't do testing. I don't do any of that shit because what I know is healing for people is a connection and feeling seen and heard. And it's really just a conversation. You know, it's just a conversation with someone who is not involved in your everyday life and has some insight about, you know, the, the, the kind of systems of feelings and how your brain works and trauma in this case and all of it. Um, and it's, it's, I don't think it's as scary usually as people think it's going to be. That's really important for people to understand. It's a, it's a big deal. And, and that's why I, I love seeing not just the podcast, but people out there um, talking more on social media about all of this, all of it, whether it's just, you know, the, the symptoms or it's the resources or it's admitting they see a therapist, whatever it is, I think the more and more, you know, that people come out about this and this becomes the normal conversation, much like, you know, when the fire service cancer was like, never, we never talked about cancer. Oh, we don't, right. we don't, we don't clean our gear. You had to wear the melted helmet all the time. And, and, you know, the dirtier the gear, the tougher you were. And now it's like, oh, yeah. well, that shit gives you cancer. Right. Um, and now we clean our gear and now we talk about cancer and now we get pre-screenings and we, you know, we go and see our doctor and stuff. This I think is the path that mental health is sort of on yeah. where we're, we're starting to get to that more normal conversation where the people are like, Oh, wait a minute. You said, you said you're scared of something or you have PTSD. Oh, sorry. Don't talk about that. We're now starting to be like, Hey, tell me a little bit more about that. I don't, I don't know a lot about that. And, um, that's huge. That's a big, I think a big change in the, uh, you know, breakdown of the stigma. Yeah. I think, I mean, my dream is that there is training around wellness every week in the fire station and at the PD in the, you know, office, mm -hmm. just like there is about cleaning your gear and breathing apparatus and all those things, because the, once it's really embedded and it just becomes this like training that we do every week, that I think is when it's going to be then when people aren't having to seek it right? It's just there. I think that's really important. Um, and we did that for a while after the campfire and it was so successful. Um, it was, it was so interesting for me because I would walk into a station and just kind of sit down to shoot the shit with people. And pretty soon, you know, more people are in the doorway. Someone's now in the kitchen. <laughs> the young guys are coming in from cleaning the trucks. Like, yep. okay, now, you know, an hour later, we're just, everybody's sitting there having this conversation because, it's important. 
you know, and it has to sort of happen organically. I don't think holding a big training, you know, mm. that you can show up to or not, you know, I don't think that works as well as that sort of like informal, this is what we talk about all the time. It's just part of same with suicide. Like the more we talk about suicide, the less stigma and the more it just becomes a conversation and a person is able to say, Hey, I'm feeling suicidal instead of it being this huge secret. So that's a whole other ball of wax, but sort of. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and the hope is here that, you know, proactive resiliency sort of becomes a thing where it's not where we're not waiting for crisis to happen to start getting people back to healing that we're we're healing from the get-go so this doesn't become strange territory and people have this as a skill set much like you have your firefighting or your law enforcement skills you have your mental health skills and um you know i think it could lead to such great things i think it's so great that you are doing this podcast and that you're you're being vulnerable and willing to talk about your own experience and is such a great way of of normalizing the conversation. Yeah. Just taking away that stigma that something wrong is wrong with someone because right. they're struggling, you know? So, well, I'm not the only one out there doing it. I appreciate that. Uh, and that's why we do it. We just, we want people not to have to go through what we did for such a long time. And there's no reason why anyone should. And I will say that just quickly, that is one thing that I have seen that has changed also is that I'm getting more and more clients in their twenties. Mm who are getting it like, oh, I got to start clearing this shit out as it's happening because they're working with 40, 45 year olds who are, who they see are so overwhelmed and so shut down and so in, unable to deal with their emotions. And so that is, that's great. That is, I, I, you know, friends say, oh, my, my son or daughter is thinking about being a firefighter. What do you think? And I'll say, well, I, I think they should use every single one of their EAP sessions from the moment they start just mm -hmm. to get that stuff out, you know, and process it and process it and process it. So it doesn't build up. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's just building that skill set and getting familiar with, um, unfamiliar territory for sure. Yeah, for sure. Oh, awesome. Katie, this has been an amazing discussion and, and, a, and a great perspective for those listening and watching to hear a clinician, uh, sort of give their end of things. Uh, thank you for coming on today. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been, it's been great for me too appreciate it awesome folks uh i will put the uh katie's information in the show notes for you to uh you know reach out to her and and check out her stuff for sure and uh you know stay tuned for future episodes here on the resilient responder podcast and as always stay safe and stay healthy much love